The Trek Files, Season 6, Episode 18, Kirk, Spock, and Other Continuing Star Trek Characters, April 18th, 1968. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, well, Star Trek fans, hey, Star Trek historians, hey, Trekophiles, spelled with an F, I'm talking to you as usual. You canonistas, I say that lovingly. Look, um, we are back in the roots of Star Trek, uh, talking about an issue that, uh, yes, is still very much with us today, namely Spock and all things Vulcan. And, you know, I recently had a special guest on with us that I, we, we could just, we could not wrap up everything we wanted to talk about in one week. So we've got a lovely document for you to check out today. Really interesting, uh, especially for its place in time. So check that out, as you always can every week. Look at our documents right there on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Take a look at that. Meanwhile, uh, take a listen here for a segment of that. And hang on, I'll be right back with this week's guest. In the beginning of Star Trek episodes, Mr. Spock was a fellow who occasionally said illogical, and that was about it. We all worked very hard to build him into a fully dimensional character, and a lot of people, including Leonard Nimoy, deserve credit. But we should keep in mind that he is difficult to write properly, And our writers, like all others, do have that unfortunate tendency to avoid the difficult. (laughs) Hey, Trekophiles, I think this is just an amazing document because it's like the crew, Gene, yes, Gene, at the beginning of the, yes, third season, is actually taking time to, to take a breather and look at all the characters we're focusing on, Spock. Um, as they plunge into this third season, of course, that was saved by the uh, historical writing campaign that saved the show. And then in, we all know how history played out for the third season and the future of Spock. So I, it's, it's a moment of time. I wasn't around then to, to think about this and worry about it. But we've got a guest today who was and was very much invested in this. And I just want to work, welcome back to the show. Jean Laura. Jean is a professor emeritus of English at Murray State University. And most of all, she was part of that amazing generation of, and still is, still is, part of the amazing generation of people who were inspired to write fan fiction, the, full, the whole fanzine movement that led to clubs and conventions and media con fandom for Star Trek and basically the Comic-Con culture we have today. So people, I, I, I try to beat that drum whenever I can. So thank you, Gene, for coming back and help, helping me beat that drum once again. Well, thank you for inviting me. So what I love about this document, Gene, is the moment in time. It's like, yes, Gene is actually writing and caring about the third season uh, with Freddie Freiberger coming into the mix. Um, we, we have our historical view about how that all played out, but they've actually filmed Spectre of the Gun, which was called The Last Gunfight. It was actually the first episode they filmed, even though we all know that Spock's brain is what aired first. But they're actually in the process of writing and, and 
even though that has started, Gene takes a moment here to to try to get a breather, try to catch a breath for everybody, whoever whoever may be on the other end of this, and talk about the characters. And here he's talking about Spock, and I love him being blunt, as we just heard, uh, <laughs> that uh, he's just a guy that said illogical, and that was about it, and that's the stereotype of Spock. But there's so much there, and the and the fan base, when it was done right, uh, when Dorothy Fontana did a script, especially on Vulcans, we we knew what was up there, and it's what attracted people like you. Um, so what's your reaction to reading? Here's Gene's hopes and goals for the character, and do you agree with that? And and we all know what happened in the third season that it didn't always live up to this. What what what's, right. your, what's your reaction? Well, I mean, I think all my Spanish friends were just horrified by Spock's brain. That was probably worse than the worst Lost in Space episode ever. <laughs> it was probably, it, well, it felt as if it was written by a 10-year-old. Anyway, this description of Spock here seems uh, a, a little light on character. Well, he is talking to TV writers. <laughs> yes. Not your peers, but... <laughs> in our best scripts, he has volunteered information, had opinions, pressured the captain, argued with him. Uh, and there is certainly no rule on Star Trek that Spock cannot occasionally be proved right and Kirk wrong. Well, in the first two seasons, that, that happened with fair frequency, actually. But then things like chess games, which Kirk wins because Spock can't deal with Kirk's illogical moves. And then this odd sentence, we have also established that Spock eats strange foods, plomeek soup. What's strange about plomeek soup? It's, it's made from plomeeks, which obviously grow on Vulcan. Uh, <laughs> it's not like Klingon food. Uh, yeah. That's so unimportant. Is enormously lonely? What? He's found his home on the Enterprise. There's no indication that he's enormously lonely. Involves himself in strange scientific computations, yes. Uh, in his cabin? Uh, th this is not the Spock I saw. The, the Spock I saw didn't seem to have any trouble eating whatever was available in the mess hall. Uh, seemed to have found a home on the Enterprise with friends with... Mm -hmm. Everybody. So this this conjure, he's writing this memo to uh, to Fred, but also to to TV writers. Right, it's to disseminate, maybe put in an updated Bible. But he's his target here is TV writers. Does 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 your reaction there speak to maybe the difference between what TV writers were trying to get out and producible on TV, and what you all as fans were feeling unfulfilled by and wanted to bring to your zine stories? I mean, is that just exactly what it's all about, why the whole movement arose in the first place. We want more, we want deeper. Yes, but what strikes me as very odd about this, when Gene Roddenberry writes about Kirk, he goes into this, how Kirk has to be the leader at all times, and he can't allow his officers to question him, and he uh, must guard his tongue, guard even his affections for others. 
that is so that statement is so ahead of its time that mm-hmm. that's how tv scripts are written today not in the 1960s mm-hmm. and it's so odd that he would want that for kirk but doesn't seem to his descriptions of, of spock are so superficial i'm going but he invented spock <laughs> <laughs> well i mean spock did kind of explode i mean between you know the what was spock on the paper and then what leonard nimoy brought to it and then the, mm. the qualities that say dorothy brought to spock and vulcans yes, all was a very yes. happy you know the souffle <laughs> puffed up mm. much nicer than it ever had any reason to in the oven so i mean it, i don't want to say spock was a happy accident but it did it, it, he went from being a second banana to competing you know for co-billing basically mm. in the in the affection of the fans and the power and the dynamic of the show and but you're right though it 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 um but on the other hand with the glass half full i'm thinking he's seeing that what the tv writers what their writers are doing with their spec scripts are spock is really sagging and just what he's giving here would would fluff things up a little bit i mean i you know i don't know mm-hmm. what what gets me is now even in hindsight and you know this i i love telling fans today that talk about the fan divisions and the you know the reactions to the people are acquainted with the, the you know killing spock and the wrath of khan and that reaction and the coming of next generation and all the reactions to everything new since there's always a faction of fandom that has trouble <laughs> oh, yes. you know getting used to the new uh, but i love telling people now about the reaction of fandom in the 70s as as things got more organized and and maybe even uh you know we were able to communicate with each other before i'm talking paper mm-hmm. and stamp days like interstat and yes. some of the high you know the zine the zine network and as people were being mm-hmm. able to communicate and, and opinionate with each other way before email and the internet but this right. whole thing about the faction of fandom that that just ignored that they they just canceled the third season because of the way they perceived spock to have been treated well we wanted more spock we wanted more of his background more personality we wanted that from from actually from day one i remember the the first i don't know six to ten episodes of the first season was never enough spock he was just kind of there in the background and then as the fan mail poured in Mm -hmm. they started building the character up because the fans were screaming for it the third season wasn't treated that well and fans resented it of course we we had seen the writers learn from us in the first season we had seen paramount bow to us with the letter campaign <laughs> we we thought we could mm-hmm. get our spock back on the screen well <laughs> we eventually did on the big screen, <laughs> but that, we we couldn't know in 1969 that that uh, that was was right. going to happen. Well, I I remember people. I mean, I didn't. It didn't bother me. But then Spock and Vulcans weren't my focus. As, as, I mean, I loved all of it, but it wasn't my focus. But I remember later seeing a lot of the the, the Zine community talking about say spock's very frank talk uh, about vulcan biology quote unquote with droxine or or they didn't like as as intriguing as it was the whole 
relationship between Spock and the Romulan commander and whether how much of it was was true and how much of it was just covert officer on a spy mission playing James Bond, whatever. But I, I remember those were two of the sore points. But then just overall, I mean, the whole third season, a lot of people knew that it wasn't as, as written with as much depth. And and good old Freddie Freiberger gets a lot of the... <laughs> Gets a lot of the scorn for that, but uh, I, I don't know. Does any of that? Were you of that camp? Were you of the camp that said I just ignored the third season and don't even, uh, you know, later no. on? No, uh, because even in my zine stories, and then later when I wrote the professional Trek novels, at that time I could quote you chapter and verse out of everything. But come on, that was 50 years ago. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. I have had to stuff a lot of other things in my head <laughs> since then. And it, as Sherlock Holmes said, the things that I would have liked to keep got pushed out. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, but we do have the Internet now for that when we do need it. But just that uh, just that feeling. I, I just remember, you know, it, it, it was disappointing enough for the show to be canceled. So I... It, but it wasn't disappointing enough. Everybody still emerged from the cancellation with the desire to keep writing. Like, don't you mm -hmm. dare take my Star Trek away from me. I mean, I guess that right. was what was well. That, that, was, that was when the flood of mm -hmm. fanzine stories began. And people began organizing fanzines. Vulcanalia already existed, but and a, and a small handful of others. But once it was canceled, you realize that that uh, nobody thought of it as a franchise. Mm -hmm. It was it was just a failed show, as far as Paramount was concerned. So the fans felt absolutely free to take it and run mm -hmm. because if we didn't make it, there was never going to be any more Star Trek, and the characters would die. And if apparently the only people who cared were you then who cares? I mean, it's like... Yeah, exactly. Was, yeah. And Paramount <laughs> didn't care. They didn't try to stop the fanzines in any way. And I think with the, the success of the animated series and then the explosion in syndication, mm -hmm. when they realized, wait a minute, we thought this was cold and dead, and it's a hot property. And what's it do to... In very large part, mm -hmm. these thousands of fans out there running conventions for a dead show, uh, writing stories in a dead universe is not dead. And and what's and what we have to go back to when we know all these things as historical moments, and we can see the the ramp. But what to contrast with today? Everything is so instantaneous. We're in a 24-7 Twitter, you know, uh, social media world here. And mm -hmm. reactions to a show don't take half a season to, to pile up in the, in the mailbags. People get an instant reaction within a week or two, right? The trend lines are right. there. And, and if they want, if they either want to embrace it or reject it, showrunners <laughs> are totally aware of what fan sentiment is right out of the gate. And, and there's now the savvier networks and studios have people who are on that and they're tailoring the whole social media campaign on you know they're not telling people don't take photos they're saying take your photos cast and crew but hang on until we can like leak them out at the right time right i mean it's we've also savvy about how to handle that but in the slow motion days i say this in the paper and stamp days 
it took a while for things to gel and mm-hmm. and for Paramount, who bought Desilu, for all of them to realize what they had and let it get away. But it's that, it's the local station's ratings, it's the tech manual being a bestseller for three months, it's the convention movement getting started, you know, all of that ramp up. And, um, and they do finally, but it was long enough for you guys to basically all get grandfathered in is something that they couldn't touch. It's like they, they owed the, the bucks that were going to come down the line, <laughs> they owed to that, so they couldn't blow you up, you know, even if the mm-hmm. lawyers would have loved to have done that. So it was kind of a... Anyway, it's, it's just an amazing thing. But this, our document this week is just... Uh, it's, it's such a... To me, it's, it, I say that phrase all the time, but it's such a snapshot in time of, of a pivot point where they knew... Uh, that they wanted to do something more and they wanted to get out of maybe some bad habits but had no idea of the bad and the good that was about to come down the pike and it's just amazing to look Mm -hmm. back at it now and to think that even Spock at his ebb was still enough to keep animating you all and and uh and and the fact that what what uh they call in Star Trek lives the discovery effect the other part of not having the internet and social media was you all didn't know each other were there or in those right. numbers until you all bumped into each other and wrote letters. And the first yes. the first convention that in New York that planned for 500 and had 3,000. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, that was yes. part of this whole formula, too. Is it just amazing to look back and think on back on that now? <laughs> yes, it is. But it was fun to live through it. Well, Jean, uh, The Night of the Twin Moons is your saga about Sarek and Amanda. Yes. It's out there. Hopefully the recreation efforts are out there to spread it with more. Listen, I just want to thank you so much for spending some more time with us and um, and bringing the outlook of that era back for us and making it very much alive today. So thank you again. You're welcome. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. And all of our documents, as usual, and your chance to comment, as always, are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. For more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.